Hey friends, welcome to the Evergreen Way podcast, where we talk about what it looks like to be a healthy leader for the long haul. My name is Andy Needham. I serve on the team with Converge Northeast, and I'm so excited to be able to share these conversations with you. We have some incredible interviews and conversations in the weeks ahead for you to check out. I cannot wait for you to listen to them. But as we launched this podcast, we wanted to actually share with you a special bonus episode right out of the gate with you. Our first episode was an interview with Pastor Dave Ripper from Crossway Community Church in Nashville, New Hampshire. Dave has been a part of the Evergreen Way team, both for our one-day event in the spring of 2022 and the Evergreen Way cohort, which we've been leading this year. At our conference, which we had last spring, Dave opened up our day with a really engaging, thought-provoking talk, and I wanted to share that with you today. I hope you come back and hear our interviews in the weeks to come. Once again, give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. But right now, let's get right to this keynote message, Pastor Dave. Check, check, check. We're good. All right. Well, I'm Dave, and uh, I'm kind of curious, Andy, is there any more Andy Needham band merch available for those of us who might like some of that? I think it would be awesome. Summer Andy is one of my favorite Andys as well, because when he gets nice, nice bronze glow to him, I can start call him, I can call him Tandy Needham, which is... One of my favorite affectionate nicknames for, uh, for my good buddy here, but thank you for being here at Crossway. Our staff is glad to just answer any questions you might have as well. If you're a Crossway staff, can you just like put your hand up or let people know who's around. You can look around. Our, our crew is glad to help you. Uh, thank you guys for being here and just offering some great hospitality. I heard a few of you mention uh, just the beauty of the, the pond and kind of a neat spot, and, and it really is a unique place. And as it brings some unique gifts, it also brings some unique challenges. Uh, one that we had to navigate this past spring was there was an otter in the pond. Now, the Nashville Flycasters Association actually maintained that for us, kind of a gentleman's handshake. And they stock the, the pond with about $3,500 worth of fish every year. And otters have a tendency to eat their weight in fish every single day. So I've got people at our church like, oh, isn't this so cute? We've got this otter here, and you've got the Flycasters Association. We need to get this thing out of here. Now, one of the things I learned uh, about researching through the New Hampshire Game Commission, which is something you do never think you will be doing as a lead pastor, is that you, it is illegal to capture an otter and transport it to another location. Stuff they do not teach you in seminary. And so the fly caster fish, the association wanted to set up traps, which they did to try and capture this otter. And so I'm like really feeling torn here. And so we eventually talked with one of the, the leaders who goes to our church. And I said, Do you know what Jesus said about otters? Called to love otters as yourself, called to love one another. Boy, it's a tough crowd to warm up here this morning. Thank you. I, I became a dad for the jokes here. But uh, <laughs> praise God, the otter 
left on his own volition, and I'm glad I don't have that as part of the litany of things of my tenure here, <laughs> that there were otters getting hurt. So I am so glad that uh, you are here, and Andy's kind of asked me to focus our time on some of the aspects of the inner life of leaders. What would the inner life of an evergreen leader be like? And to talk about that, I want to rewind about five years. One of the really unique callings to my life was I was invited to help start a chapel program for the Boston Bruins. I don't play hockey. I've tried to create a little bit of a hockey look during the pandemic period, but uh, besides that, I had no business starting a chapel program. But my good friend Adam McQuaid, here's a picture of me and Adam, he became a, a Christian and was going to the church I used to serve at, Grace Chapel down in Lexington, and flourishing in his faith. We get to get this chapel program started, and it just started to take off. There was a time we were having lunch after one of the practices at the TD Garden, and at that moment, unsuspecting to me, that was probably one of the most single, pivotal spiritual experiences I have had in my 11 years of serving in New England. We had 16 of the 25 players coming to chapel, and I was talking about what love, the love of Christ is really all about. It's willing the good of others, disadvantaging yourself so that others might be lifted up. And after this time of my sharing, Adam says, hey, I just want to address kind of the elephant in the room right now. You know, my whole career, I've always had a slot right there in the, in the defense, but now you know, I just want to name the fact that, that Nick Holden, who's also here in this circle, just got traded. It's me and Nick vying for the same spot. And Nick, I just want to tell you, I am for you. Like, I want to see you thrive. I want to see you flourish. Now, don't get me wrong. I want that spot myself, and I'm gunning for it. But I want you to know that I want you to thrive and succeed and flourish as well. As you might imagine, all the other players were just stunned. Jaws kind of dropped. And I felt an incredible amount of invitation and conviction in that moment. I was immediately turned to my old context. There was about 60 people on staff, about 17 of us that had Master of Divinity degrees. We've been trained in preaching. And the equivalent of ice time for us was kind of like pulpit time. And I started really knowing I genuinely was not for my colleagues the way Adam was for Nick or the other teammates. Because I wanted to outdo the other people so I could get more of that stage time, pulpit time. And I started to think, God, what does Adam have that I don't? I want more of that. What does he have that I don't? Besides height and strength and money and fame. <laughs> Adam did, uh, here's a picture from his early days of his career. He, he did rock a mullet for, uh, for a while. And I am just about two swipes of some cutters from being right there. And... Uh, I've been threatening it for my family. My, my oldest son's like, you better not make a mullet. I hate mullets. Mullets are stupid. But we'll just see, you know. Uh, who knows how the Lord will lead. But that whole idea of getting to know Adam in this way, it shaped our whole chapel experience. The most vulnerable group of people I am around are the Boston Bruins, believe it or not. That just shaped the whole ethos of our culture, of our chapel times, of really sharing what's really going on. But that led me on a search and a pursuit of what is that elusive quality that Adam really possessed that, that I'm lacking in my own spiritual life. I feel like if I could figure out what that is, that could change 
how I relate with others, how I lead, how I minister, and even how I relate with God. Well, probably about six months later, I figured out what that elusive thing was. I was reading a posthumously released book by Dallas Willard called Life Without Lack. Write that one down. You want to pick it up. It's his reflections on Psalm 23. And the pastor who transcribed these old cassette tapes, we're talking CDs, I want to go back even earlier to cassette tapes that Dallas did in a room with maybe 20 people, became this book. And this man, Larry Bertoff, who was the pastor of the church there where Dallas was teaching, described Dallas, who taught philosophy at the University of Southern California for 47 years, the most Christ-like man I ever met, named our oldest son after him. He said Dallas was a person who was not easily threatened. Not easily threatened. And I realized, oh, that's Adam. He did not see Nick, even though he and Nick Holden were vying for that same spot. Adam did not see Nick as a threat. And what did he possess spiritually that enabled him to view his teammate just like that? That is what I wanted. Because I could tell you, in my life, I was far too easily threatened. Almost any mistake I have made in communicating with others, leading in some fashion to preserve myself at the expense of the interests of the kingdom or the church or loving others, it's almost all come down to the times when I allowed myself to become too easily threatened by others. And you look at the downfall of people in Scripture, almost every one of these key characters were people who were too easily threatened. Let's just think about a few of those. How about King Saul? Kind of like Adam McQuaid above every other person. Fits the role as king, loses his connection to God, stops obeying him. David gets anointed. And very quickly, they're singing songs. Saul's killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And Saul, so easily threatened by this new emerging leader. He could have brought David aboard. Just imagine if he had looked at David differently. If he had more security in his life, what could have been done for the kingdom, for the nation? How about the Pharisees? They get this new rabbi on the scene who everyone's flocking to. He's kind of like the new hip rabbi of the day. And he doesn't really fit categories very easily. Doesn't fall into those false binaries at all. He's kind of showing this third way. And he becomes a real threat to their status, to their positions, to their authority, to their security, to their power. And rather, having enough connection to God to really consider who is this man, they want to eliminate him. How about some of the easily threatened feelings that Jesus' disciples had? Think about Peter and John. At the end of John's Gospel, Mary reveals that the tomb is empty. So Peter and John start running to the tomb. And it's one of the most unique passages, I think, of the Scripture, that the tomb is empty, and yet John records multiple times that he, as the disciple Jesus loved, gets to the tomb before Peter. Again and again that occurs. Then after they find Jesus, Peter gets reinstated. Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus starts to give... Peter, a glimpse into the future. What's your calling? As Peter sees it, he also sees over his shoulder John 
lurking in the background. And Peter, probably out of his sense of threatenedness by this other disciple, asks, well, what about him? And what does Jesus say to Peter? What is that to you? You must follow me. Now, I think there's some conviction in that statement. What is that to you? But I also think there's a really radical invitation that we do not need to concern ourselves with how we measure up, with how we stack up. We don't need to be sizing up one another. Who's having the greater kingdom influence? No, Jesus is saying you can be freed from all of that. What is that to you? And so today I want to look at how we can discover that kind of freedom, which I believe is found as we become people and leaders and Christ followers who are not easily threatened. I want to look at what that positive alternative is to not being easily threatened. Well, let me ask a few questions, and we're going to, get to give you some opportunity not just to listen to me, but to really do some work of reflecting on this in prayer with God and conversing about this together. But when you think about this idea of being threatened, what makes Christian leaders today feel threatened? What would you think? Well, let's get a little bit more personal. What makes you feel threatened? And let's take that even a little bit further, a little bit deeper. Who makes you feel threatened? What do you feel when you're feeling threatened? What are your default responses? What triggers your feelings of threat? One of the interesting parts of my life is that I am married to a mental health therapist, Aaron, who's in the back of the room, and that means I get psychoanalyzed all the time, whether I want to or not. But one of the good mantras that we talk about in our house is that you are to own your emotions, don't enthrone them. Own them, don't enthrone them. And own is an acronym. And we'll look at these questions here in just a little bit. But OWN is an acronym for observe, welcome, and then name. Observe them, welcome them, and then name them. So a lot of times when we start to feel threatened, we try and run from those feelings. We feel negative about them. We might feel guilty that we're having them. I shouldn't be feeling this way. But if we just keep pushing them to the side, they're going to keep welling up again and again and again. So we need to observe when they are happening. And we don't need to run from them. We need to welcome them, and we need to name what it is we're feeling when we're feeling it, because as a lot of counselors will tell you, what you can name through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can tame. What you can name, you can tame. So I want us to get a chance to start to name those feelings of threatenedness, because this matters so deeply. I believe easily threatened leaders make the absolute worst kingdom leaders. They're good at building empires, making it all about me, and look what I've done. But when it comes to spreading the presence of the kingdom in our communities and world, easily threatened people become territorial, they become paranoid, they're easily uh, threatened, and, and they want to eliminate, they keep people at arm's length from them rather than welcoming them in. They're the hardest people to work for, some of the hardest people to work with. Easily threatened people then struggle to relate well with, with others. If we're so easily threatened and we're being with somebody who might maybe have a greater CV than us, we're constantly sizing up ourselves with one of them. How are we going to have that kind of spiritual friendship that Andy talked about? 
Easily threatened people are limited in their depth of relationship with God. Let me unpack that just for a moment. What happens after Adam and Eve sin? First thing they start to do is they go into hiding. They go into hiding. And I think where we feel insecure, where we feel easily threatened, a lot of us try and hide that side of ourselves from God. And that prevents us from experiencing the intimacy, the relationship that God would desire for us. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Feelings of threat sabotage your capacity and my capacity to love. To love God, to love others, even to love ourselves correctly. So I'd like to do a little exercise individually, and then we can talk a little bit at our tables here. Let's put those questions back up. What makes Christian leaders feel threatened? What makes you feel threatened? Who makes you feel threatened? And what do you feel when you're starting to feel threatened? I'd like for us, it's 10.02. I'd like for us to go to 10.10, just individually. Maybe just take a moment to just ask God to speak to you. And let's reflect on this a little bit because I believe this is the thing that a lot of us as Christian leaders struggle with and it's never, ever brought to light, never spoken about, and yet it is inhibiting our capacity to love, to lead, to serve, to minister. So may the Lord speak to you now, and we'll take about eight minutes to reflect on these questions, and I'll give us a prompt to talk about them together. All right? Let's take some time to do this now. All right, who, by show of hands, can you relate? Feeling senses of threatenedness in, in your ministry life and career? Uh, just about me and maybe two other people, so I'm just talking. Thank you for the, allowing me to process very therapeutically here today in front of all of you. At home is not enough. Uh, no, for real. I mean, I think this is something in these last couple of years, especially how many other sources of threat besides the normal thing of, wow, that's the new church, or look at this person, next book contract, they're the fastest growing, they're on outreach, you know, 100s, top growing churches, all those kind of things. Now we're talking about internal division, we're talking about people trying to actually eliminate you from your role, uh, all of the tension points of the pandemic, and it doesn't look like any of those things are really going away anytime soon. So what might be the radical antidote from being gripped by the power and feeling strangled by being too easily threatened. I want to share three shifts that I think any of us can begin to make to become people who are not easily threatened and instead are growing in joyful confidence in God. From being not easily threatened to being joyfully confident. Some of this language comes from, from Dallas Willard here, and I love this statement he made to a group of pastors shortly before he died. This is back in 2013. He said, arrange your life so you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. Imagine what that would look like, what you gave your attention to, the rhythm and the pace of your life, if you arranged your days so you were experiencing, not just thinking about it, not just talking about it, but really experiencing deep contentment, joy, which is a pervasive sense of well-being, and confidence in your everyday life with God. 
I believe that the kind of evergreen leaders who will last will be people who have arranged their lives to experience this deep contentment, deep joy, deep confidence in God. So how can we get there? Shift one, we need to move from a scarcity mentality to one of sufficiency. Generally, when I feel most threatened is when I start thinking there is not enough. There's not enough talent to go around. If this person is successful, then I can't be. If my classmate in seminary is this this gifted, then I must be less and God doesn't have a place for me. All the ways the enemy gets into my mind, that scarcity mentality is such a killer to contentment and to confidence. But one of the passages of Scripture Willard would reflect on daily, sometimes he'd never make it past verse 1, is just Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. In the way Dallas translated, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Maybe just pray that prayer right now where you are, right as you are. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. The world might be putting it before me. Instagram might be putting it before me that there are things that are missing in my life. Education, talent, whatever. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. A life without lack is available to you and to me as we start to trust in the sufficiency of our great shepherd. So we need to stop allowing ourselves to gravitate toward this scarcity mentality, but to pray again and again over and over. It's one of my favorite kind of like just go-to prayers. Once feelings of threat start to arise, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Gordon MacDonald will be coming a little bit later. I got to spend time with him and his son Mark just this past Monday. And his, his son Mark does a lot with neuroscience as it relates to faith and leadership. And he was sharing this really powerful model called the SCARF model. I don't have a slide for this, but it's an acronym that stands for these five words that spell out SCARF of status, of certainty, autonomy, relationships, and fairness. And when one of those things starts to get interrupted, or it starts, we start to feel those things are being threatened, our status, maybe how we view ourselves, our certainty of the future or what's expected of me at my job, our sense of autonomy, that I'm in charge, I'm in control, our, our relationships when maybe there's somebody new coming in and that starts to make our, our dynamics feel threatened, or fairness starts to feel questioned or interrupted or threatened, those feelings start to emerge and well up within us. And what neuroscientists would say to lead more effectively, we need to take at least a three to five second pause so that in that pause, we can start to move toward responding from kind of the prefrontal cortex aspect of our brains, which is where we function at the right kind of higher level of capacity, not from a flight or, or flight or a fight or flight response, but more calmed and centered. And I believe a prayer that can help us not react when we start to feel threatened in unhealthy ways, but when we start to feel and own those emotions welling up, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I lack nothing to solve this problem, to respond to this crisis, because God is my shepherd. So we need to move from that scarcity mentality to one of sufficiency, knowing that we have all we need in Christ. Do you believe that? 
Secondly, we need to make a shift, and I heard this at some of the tables, from pride to humility. From pride to humility. Typically, feelings of threatenedness are great indicators of where we have yet to die to ourselves, to die to the egoic operating system, where I'm allowing my wants, my desires, my ambitions to drive instead of God's kingdom values. Willard would often talk about remove automatic responses that are antithetical to the kingdom of God. And a lot of those automatic responses that are antithetical to the way of Jesus generally touch the nerves of where we are insecure and where we feel threatened. And those areas of threatenedness often are identifiers of where our ego is too much at work. Humility is death to self, not death of self. That's a big distinction. God put us here to be selves. He's given us personalities and temperaments. And so when we die to self, we're not dying to who God has created us to be, but we're dying to the part where my wants, my desires, my ego is in control and calling the shots. And a lot of those daily struggles, humiliations that we experience, unfair, undue criticism, our little moments of opportunity to die to ourselves, to shift from pride to humility again and again. I believe the church will miss out on the invitation inherent in this awful, awful pandemic if we do not allow ourselves to be humbled. That we do not allow our egos to keep driving how we lead churches, how we serve, building our own platforms more than being about building God's kingdom. I love this quote from Willard about how he defines humility. It's the beautiful condition of people who have learned to surrender their desires, their glory, and their power. It's a beautiful condition. How might God be inviting you to die to self so that you might live and lead with greater security and sufficiency in him? And here's the third shift, and we'll spend the rest of our time on this. From doing for God to pursuing union with God. From doing things for God to pursuing union with God. Gordon, who will be here this afternoon, I love to ride in the car with him. He's been a great mentor. I've known him since my Denver seminary days back in 08, and I love this question he raised. He's one of the best question askers I have ever been around. He said, what is it about our evangelical faith that leaves us always feeling like we're never doing enough? What is it about our evangelical faith that leaves us feeling like we're not doing enough, not baptizing enough people, not putting in enough hours at work that we can't actually take a Sabbath or rest or feel guilty doing it or feel like I need to apologize for doing it? What about our faith is leaving us with this feeling that I am never, ever doing enough, have become enough, have accomplished enough, have built God's kingdom enough. What is it about our faith? We are saved by grace, but then somehow we think we are proven by our works. We find our identity in what we do or what other people think about us or what we've accomplished, what we have, what we lack. I think we've forgotten what is the ultimate goal of the Christian spiritual life. And believe it or not, I think there's far too many leaders that don't have much of a Christian spiritual life. 
A lot of you probably read uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer, and I was really struck in the opening pages where he said, it is so possible to become a success as a pastor and a failure as an apprentice of Jesus. How many successful pastors are out there? I get to kind of know some of them, and I hope I'm not one of them, but I wouldn't want that person's spiritual life. (laughs) It's possible to be successful as a Christian leader and yet be a failure as as a follower or disciple or apprentice of Jesus. And I believe the reason for that is we've aimed at the wrong target. We've set our eyes on the wrong goal of what our life with God is to be all about. Historically, if you go back to the first centuries of the church, the goal of the Christian spiritual life was union with God. Let me kind of explain what that is. There was kind of three key movements of the Christian spiritual life. If you read from the desert fathers and mothers up through a lot of the the great sages of, of the faith, they would talk about this movement of purgation to illumination, And ultimately, that would lead to union. Let's define these words a little bit here. Purgation is about releasing the things that pull us away from God. So think about what might pull you away from the presence of God, from from practicing His presence, from living in a conversational relationship with Him. Could be some of our aspirations, could be how other people view us. could be our craving for security or power. What might be those things? The Christian life is a constant release from the things that pull us away from God. Illumination is about seeking a growing realization of the power and the presence of God. Receiving, not earning, not, not proving receiving the things that would draw us closer to God. Richard Foster has a great prayer. I just want to invite you to just practice it right where you are right now. For purgation, he would invite us, extend your hands, palms facing down. And allow God to just bring to mind the things that you have been holding on to that Maybe our false attachments, misplaced or misordered loves that you need detachment from, release from. Those egoic operating system drives. And he would invite us just to sit there and just name those things. Needing to be seen. Needing to impress. Needing to prove. Needing to build. Let it go. Let it go. And then for illumination, he would invite us to turn our palms upward in just a total posture of receptivity to receive more of God's grace, more of God's love. Often I have a mantra that when I'm feeling rather insecure or easily threatened, there's something I notice about my life, my humanity that makes me insecure. Just repeat these words of of a gift of love. I'm a beloved child of God fearfully and wonderfully made, a creature endowed with infinite significance and worth. And just to receive that, just to receive that, I come out of hiding to reveal my need to receive the love of God 
and do nothing to earn it or prove it. That's illumination, purgation, illumination. And that leads all the way to what a lot of the spiritual formation leaders throughout the centuries have described as union with God. This idea of union with God is really based out of 2 Peter 1, 3-4. Let me read it to you. His divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness. That's sufficiency. You have everything you need. God's your shepherd. You lack nothing. Through the knowledge of Him, that's interactive, experiential knowing of God, not just knowing about Him, but knowing Him, who called us by His own glory and excellence. Thus He has given us, through these things, the his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may escape the corruption that is in the world because of lust. There's some of that purgation. And may become participants in the divine nature. Now for a lot of us with some evangelical sensibilities, that sounds a little too mystical for my liking. Why did Peter have to say become participants in the divine nature? Historically, that idea was called theosis, uh, and it was about not having our human nature changed into a divine nature, but it's about having our human nature transformed to be able to engage with the very nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And who is God at the core essence of who He is? I believe He is a God of holy love, the most joyous being in the universe. And so we go through purgation and illumination so that we might be transformed by love that we might be able to engage and share in the very life of the Trinity that God wants to extend to us. That is the goal of the Christian spiritual life. And how few Christian leaders these days have that as the target of what they are aiming at and pursuing. Think of this in terms of like a marital relationship. Starts out with a little conversation, typically. Uh, my wife who's here, I've met her when I was 16. She was 15 at a Pentecostal, Italian Pentecostal church camp. Neither of us are really Italian or Pentecostal, but it really worked out for us. And I just had that sense somebody was standing right behind me, and I was blocking their view in this group photo, and that kind of got a little conversation going. Then I was uh, a participant in the Stupid Human Tricks competition that really grossed Aaron out. But about a year later, we started dating, and it started off with conversation, and that conversation then led to communion, or being together. You start to have those long phone conversations, and suddenly when you're together, it's like you really don't need to even have a lot of words. And that communion ultimately led to our marital union about five years later. Conversation, communion, union. And just as that plays out in a lot of different types of, of human relationships, that is what God's inviting us toward as well. Are we able to hear God in conversation? Are we able to be with Him without feeling like we've got to do things for Him? And that leads to union. And in my doctoral studies through the Dallas Willard Center and Fuller Theological Seminary, I did a large paper on this premise because I still want to just learn this more and more and more. And here's what I'm convinced of as I've read centuries of, of Christian spiritual history and writings. The more in union we are living with God, the less easily threatened we will be. The more in union that we are living with God, when that's our pursuit, the less easily threatened we will be. Because we're not finding our identity, our worth, with anything other 
from any other source other than what God wants to lavish upon us each and every day in His presence. And so I want to challenge you, if you want to be an evergreen leader who lasts, make your goal union with God. Because as you make union with God your goal, you'll be the kind of person who can withstand any sense of external threat, internal threat within the church, or even the kind of insecurities that sabotage our own leadership because we're finding our identity in the wrong things instead of the love of God. Amen? Let me share one last story, and I'll give a little bit more of a conversation update, uh, opportunity for us. Just about 40 miles west, 40 minutes west of here, rather, is a little mountain called Pac-Manadnock. It's about 2,300 feet. Anyone done the Pac-Manadnock here before? You can drive up it. It's like a nice mountain if you don't want to climb. I did my first winter climb there about a year and a half ago. And when you're here in New England and it's in the midst of a pandemic, winter hiking suddenly sounds like a really attractive thing to do. And I climbed to the top, and it was just a pristine day. First time making it up a mountain in the, in the snow. And what's fascinating, if you look directly north, there's North Pack Manadnock. It's about 2,300 feet or so. Beautiful mountain. But from where I was looking, staring straight north, way out about 150 miles into the distance, you could see the peak of Mount Washington. And in that moment, God spoke to me in just a powerful way. A lot of what us are chasing is that mountain that we can just see right there, that, that North Pack Manadnock. It's like that platform. It's, it's, the, it's the attention. It's the recognition. And those things might do something for you for a little while. It's, it's a pretty easy hike, and it looks really, really appealing for us. And for a lot of us younger emerging leaders, that's what we're kind of after. That's what we're trying to chase. God said, look way out in the distance. Mount Washington is kind of like union with God. It's going to take your whole life to, to, to make it there, but just keep taking one step. And if you're pursuing that second mountain, to kind of use some of David Brooks' language, if you're looking way out there, then the trappings of, of success, recognition, status, autonomy, title, all those things that can cause us to be easily threatened will start to fall by the wayside. And you will be seeking after the goal that I have given you, the goal of union with me. And so friends, I believe the kind of evergreen leaders that are going to last are going to be people that are chasing Mount Washington and North Pack and Nadnock to pursue that union with God that he desires for you. And it's going to take a lot of patience. Patience is a willingness to let the life we are living now to grow. Patience is a willingness to allow the calling that God has given you right now to grow, to flourish. It's not our timing. It's His. So may we patiently pursue chasing after that life with God, that union with Him, that Mount Washington mountain off in the distance. And I believe we'll be the kind of people who will be able to cheer for our teammates rather than compete with them. We'll be secure enough to really be for others without allowing the impact that might have on us to jeopardize how we relate or live. And I believe it will give us greater freedom to lead, to love, and to relate with God. So I'd like you just to take about 30 seconds, maybe a minute. What is one step you might take? What's one invitation God might have for you to be less easily threatened? 
to pursue this life of joyful confidence in God. Because I believe that step will help you embark on this journey of being evergreen leaders that flourish. Take a moment to do that, and I'll give us just a couple minutes uh, before I wrap us up to just talk within our groups about what that quality might be. So let's take 30 seconds to just think about one thing that you've heard here today that might be a next step, and we'll talk about that for a couple moments with our group. All right? Let's do it. free to share with, with others here now, and then I'll bring us back in just uh, two or three minutes, okay? One step you might take to be less easily threatened. I invite you to finish your last thought here. If you'd like to talk about any of this with me or any point in the day, I'd be glad to discuss it. It's kind of been a big part of my own journey, and I have found so much more freedom to be able to withstand a lot of the criticism, a lot of the attacks, and a lot of what I believe is going to be normative for the pastoral ministry and calling for the years to come, sad to say it. But I want to leave you with this, this prayer from Dallas Willard, a prayer that talks about the availability of this kind of life, which is available to you through the good news of the gospel as we live in greater, greater union with God. I like how Andy had a stand to pray, so I want to invite you to stand as well as I just pray this prayer over you. Willard prayed, My prayer is that you would have a rich life of joy and power abundant in supernatural results, with a constant, clear vision of never-ending life in God's world before you and of the everlasting significance of your work day by day, a radiant life and death. And so God, may you bless and keep my friends to make your face shine upon them, to shower them with your love that we would not be people who are easily threatened but would find such security, sufficiency, joy, contentment, and confidence in and through you that we can do whatever, wherever, however you are calling us to follow you. May we be like those trees that are always blooming and flourishing in season for your greater glory. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks for your time here, and I'll invite Andy or Tandy Needham back up here. Thanks, Andy. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Evergreen Way podcast. On behalf of our entire team at Converge Northeast, it is a privilege to bring you these conversations to help you be a healthy leader for the long haul. 
We would love to connect with you. Find us on Instagram at Converge Northeast and send us a message. That's an easy way to connect with us. Or you can send me an email directly, Andy at ConvergeNorthEast.org. We'd love to know what you think of the podcast, ideas you might have, or even suggestions for potential guests in the future. Please remember to follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you would, do us the favor, leave us a review. Let us know what you think and help other people discover this resource. Until next time, this is Andy Needham with Converge Northeast. Thanks so much for tuning in.